Welcome to the Leaders in LiDAR podcast series hosted by Umbilical Technology. In this series, I interview senior members of the world's leading LiDAR manufacturers to give you an insight into a misunderstood sensor technology that I and the guests of this series are confident will be ubiquitous in the coming years and providing benefits to society for a wide number of exciting use cases. Today, I'm pleased to be joined with Anand Gopalan, who is the CEO of Velodyne um, and has been with the company now for around five years, uh, joining in 2016. Up until last year, Anand was actually serving as the chief technical officer of Velodyne, so has a great understanding of the technical aspects and decisions that were behind for their LiDAR range, um, which go across different applications, um, autonomous driving, last mile delivery, industrial applications, robotics, amongst others. Velodyne are a very interesting company, and I'm sure we'll get into this, Anand, but they are, if you don't know, they are one of the original LiDAR companies within the autonomous driving domain. They took part in the famed DARPA Grand Driverless Car Challenge back in 2015. So I've seen the market change drastically in the last 15 or so years. So I'm sure Anand will be able to give us a great overview of LiDAR technology and where he thinks it will be going in the future as well. So Anand, it's a pleasure having you on. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Pleasure to be on. Not a problem. So let's firstly give the listeners a little bit more of an understanding um, about your background. So looking at your LinkedIn profile, you've always been very um, involved in the semiconductor domain. It looks like it was very much focused on analog and um, kind of high-speed hardware and RF design more recently moving into optics, I believe. So what led to you joining Velodyne in, in 2016? How did your career get to this point? Yeah, you know, I, uh, as, as you pointed out, I'm uh, an analog mixed signal RF designer by training. I got my PhD in RFIC design, uh, building Bluetooth transceivers. Uh, and Bluetooth was all the rage. Yeah. Uh, and then I joined a, a company called Kawasaki Microelectronics, which is a Japanese ASIC company, okay. uh, building ASICs for many different applications, including automotive. Okay. Uh, but one of the interesting projects that actually we worked on was also uh, optical networking. And we were building fiber to the home systems, uh, which, you know, which were deployed in Japan at that point and then in many other parts of the world. So that was my first uh, introduction to this uh, conjunction between electronics and optics, you know, in the, in the context of building an optical transceiver. And then, of course, uh, through my career, I've sort of, uh, I, was, I was at Avago for a little bit, and then I was at Rambus, uh, you know, constantly walking this, uh, this path between electronics, optics, high-speed uh, signaling. And that's, you know, that, that was sort of the, the, the pedigree, building many different products and semiconductor technologies uh, in that domain. And uh, interestingly, my my introduction to Velodyne was was literally out of the blue when I got cold called by somebody saying, oh, wow. hey, "Are you interested in uh, this uh, this company?" And and, and uh, of course, the first thing that struck me was, you know, when I researched the the opportunity was the fact that this was uh, lidar, which you know, effectively in my mind is a free space optical transceiver, and so it felt like. This was this was you know part of that journey, yeah. uh, um, you know doing semiconductors you know all the way back in the day for fiber fiber to the home systems, 
to now free space optical transceivers for you know cars and uh, and so that's the reason i came on board and it's been it's been a fun journey awesome and i mean was there was there a reason kind of was there something that made just validine kind of click was it a project that they were working on or something that you'd seen in the news for instance yeah i mean you know i think there's a few different things you know i uh, of course uh you know i i went down and met the the founder david hall uh, in his boatyard and <laughs> uh, and and it was it was uh, really evident to me that uh, this was true silicon valley right i mean this was the old building things with your hands and actually making real technologies yeah. work in the real world that's the pedigree that you know valadine comes from and you know david's really a prolific inventor and so uh that really attracted me first and foremost was this idea that this was not just you know you know pie in the sky stuff this was you know we were building real things physically um the the other thing was really you know the recognition that even at that time in 20 in 2016 mm-hmm. i mean valadine's products were already all over right i mean you oh, could see sure. the various cars you could see the google cars driving around <laughs> all of these different things with the product and it's not you know as has having been in the semiconductor world and working on data center technologies and so on it was so hard for me to actually explain what i did even to yeah. like really <laughs> and and here you know you could see the products running around in the real world actually yeah. impacting you know uh, how people drive and things like that so it's also this d- desire to work on work on something that was uh that was going to really have this big impact and visible impact that sure. you know, I finally explained to my family what I did. Yeah. Have you have you seen that so sensor? I think that was I built that sensor. <laughs> I built that, right? And so that 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 was that was a a pretty pretty cool thing. And then you know the the last thing that actually was was kind of funny is the fact that you know my uh you know my 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 father and my grandfather in India both both worked in the automotive business. I mean uh, my my grandfather was an automotive engineer, my father worked in the automotive business. and of course i wanted nothing to do with it right so i went all the way to doing electronics and and worked on data communications and so on and then lo and behold now i'm back in a business working in in automotive yeah. and uh, and so it felt like you know it was all coming for, coming back full circle so so those were the reasons that you know i ultimately ended up joining valadine yeah look great company and as i said at the start of the uh, kind of the introduction a company that's in quite a privileged position having kind of been there at the start um, and then kind of continued to innovate and iterate their products for kind of the new the new need, the new needs for both the automotive domain and for kind of the other new areas that lidar has so much benefits and kind of potential to go into and um, i'd like to focus on automotive at the start because as i said i think veladine are in a very kind of interesting position there so looking back into the history i mean one of the first kind of companies that were putting lidar com- lidars on the vehicles um i think 2007 in the darpa challenge five of the six vehicles were using kind of the in- original velodyne sensor weren't they and then that's right just to give the understanding to the to the listeners more so than anything talk us through kind of what's changed with a lidar since back then in 2007 to kind of what we're looking at now in 2000 and in 2021 Yeah it's it's really incredible to see the journey that the technology has taken and it's it's really been a, an accelerated accelerated journey when you compare sure. it with 
other similar technologies like cameras and radar, they they use they took a lot longer actually to reach the levels of integration and cost efficiency that lidar has already gotten to. So as you say, you know, back in the DARPA the DARPA Grand Challenge, you know, the the sort of iconic HDL sixty four was the product. It was this you know the, this big beefy thing on the roof of the car, and uh, and then you know I think Velodyne started down this path of miniaturization, and they, you know they, they you know David built the HDL thirty two, and then the Puck series started. You know, and this is kind of when I came on board when we already had the VLP sixteen, and then we were working on the VLP thirty two. Yeah, and at that time we uh, were, I mean, and we continue to do so, sell to all the major OEM and tech companies, and uh, you know, I think we already started having these conversations with with the major customers and hearing from them about, okay, what does lidar really need to become to scale, mm-hmm. and what you know, it's really great that you guys are buying these products from us for tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. But at the same time, we know that obviously when you're putting a million vehicles on the road, that's not going to be what LiDAR costs and that's probably not going to be the form factor. Mm. And so really as a result of those conversations, uh, we realized a few important things. I mean, the first thing that we realized was that uh, you need many different form factors uh, and fields of view for LiDAR. Uh, It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. I mean, we had level four, level five customers who still, you know, swear by the surround view, the power of the surround view LiDAR. And I'm sure we get into it in more, in more detail. Uh, but then we had ADAS customers who were saying, no, we, I need to embed this in the grill or behind yeah. the view mirror. And so there was the first recognition that there is not one architecture, but there's a family of architectures. Yeah. Second thing was the recognition that ultimately we need to, subsume a lot of the functionality into ASICs because 80% of the bill of materials of a LiDAR is still electronics and photonics. And your ability to collapse that into into an ASIC is really gives you a huge quantum leap in cost efficiency. Um, And then we really spent a lot of time thinking about miniaturization and how really you can manufacture these things at scale. What are the right architecture choices that, uh, allow us to build scalable LiDAR. And, and that's really been the journey. And, you know, today we have gotten to a point where we have this family of LiDARs, including, you know, the Velabit, which is, you know, we have talked about it as being a $100 ASP yeah. automotive grade LiDAR. And it's a result of that journey of innovation in architectures, in, uh, you know, in uh, ASICs, in uh, LiDAR miniaturization and micro packaging, mm. and all that has come together and and we are seeing the the fruits of that today where you know as we are able to roll out these really cost efficient products we are seeing so many of our customers finally saying yeah we can actually now see commercialization of our own applications with lidar and that's why we are seeing this inflection point in the industry definitely yeah i think you said it there the the acceleration in kind of innovation that's happened in in lidar centers in particular has been has been staggering both, I think, just looking at the cost reduction aspect, you can see just how much that is. And to put it into numbers, as you have said, the Vela bit is now, what, $100? Um, the Vela Ray is $500. And then you had kind of, as you said, the HDL664E that was on the Google car and kind of the first initial cars. That was kind of, wasn't it like $80,000 or something 
That's right. It was $80,000 sensor. Yeah. yeah, kind of the, just the reduction in cost should highlight to the listeners the amount of acceleration and innovation and production that's happened to really get that cost down to a point where it's it's feasible now for it to be integrated into vehicles. And I mean, that's not even talking about kind of the size. I mean, as you said, the, the original LIDARs are huge, chunky, kind of, I think they were called the KFC buckets. I've heard them referred to. And now they're kind of, I've seen the, the Puck and the Velaray are kind of a little bit bigger than your phone, I'd say. Probably a couple of phones stacked together, the Velaray. Yeah, the Velaray is, is literally the size of like a couple of smartphones and then the Velaray is even smaller. It's, it's really the size of a pack of cards. Uh, and, and, and still pr- providing the levels of performance that, you know, we, we, uh, we saw with some of the original LIDAR. So really, yeah, it's, it's been a, an, an, in a journey of innovation on so many different fronts and, uh, uh, you know, not just, not just miniaturization, but cost reduction, you know, increase in performance, increase in range, uh, increase in resolution, all of these things happening together at the same time. Uh, I think it's an incredible, it's been an incredible journey for, for Velodyne. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about LiDAR technology. It's going through such rapid changes. It's just such an interesting kind of time to look at the different companies that are involved in there. And obviously Velodyne are one of the original and still one of the main players within that domain. One thing you didn't mention else, you mentioned the cost reduction, the miniaturization, et cetera, but I know that mass production of LiDAR sensors has always been kind of a a touchy subject. There's been times where that hasn't gone to plan for some companies. How have the Velodyne found that? Yeah, I mean, you know, actually that's a really uh, important point because one way of thinking about LiDAR is that LiDAR is a trade-off between performance and manufacturability, right? Mm -hmm. To some extent, you can really design a very high performance lidar that's not manufacturable at all yeah and you can use it you can use a handful of them on like aerospace missile applications i mean that's been around for you know a few decades and then on the other end of the spectrum you can build a really cheap lidar but that has really terrible performance right yeah. and 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 i think the the story of velodyne is the story of cracking that that constraint or that trade off mm. really uh uh, you know, uh, we uh, one of the key things that really we recognized was that the biggest value we could bring to the industry was if we were able to build high performance lidars at scale. Mm. And I, you know, uh, we have really been the ones who have really done that and have the track record of doing that. You know, we have shipped over fifty thousand units in the lifetime of the company. Um, you know, even today we build and ship more lidar than all the other players put together combined. Wow. Uh, you know, in fact, there's companies out there today who are trying to go public who talk about building 100 or 200 units. I was just talking to someone in our operations team mm. who said we shipped like three or four times that in the past few days. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so uh, the level, you know, and 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 that's a result of a lot of innovation uh, and 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 thinking about about scale. You know, one of the key things about manufacturability is that it goes hand in hand with product design. I mean, you can't freeze product design uh, uh, for 100 units and say it's going to be the same when I build a million units. In fact, every order of magnitude increase in the number of units you build, you you have to rethink everything, right? You rethink the design, you rethink the manufacturing process. And we have been on that journey. 
So one of the things, one of the key innovations that has really helped uh, us accelerate the manufacturability of our sensors is uh, this uh, technology that we call the micro LiDAR array. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, best way to describe that is it's sort of a micro packaging miniaturization technology for LiDAR. Okay. It, obviously, if you're able to tightly integrate LiDAR into a piece of silicon or ceramic or, or so on, you get lots of economies of scale. You may, It's really small. It's really cheap. The problem is, can you maintain performance when you do that? And so what we recognized was that we could we could do that. So we still take very high performance lasers and detectors and our ASICs, uh, but then we have created a, a technology and a process where we can load these into a fully automated line that's creating these multi-channel LiDAR elements the size of a penny. And really what that has done is we have now been able to take out manual labor from this complex sort of optical alignment processes of putting a LiDAR together. And that's really key because now we have line of sight into, into being able to build 100,000 units a year or even going to a million units a year on the backs of this technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and further, we can now leverage that sort of unit across all of our product families, right? So yeah. rather than now having single point solutions, we have a common engine, if you will, that we can actually use to to propagate across all the families of LiDAR. And that's really what has given us, you know, the the ability to scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the choices that, the other thing I would say is the choices that you make uh, in, in, you know, right to the very beginning, you know, whether it's the lasers you use, the detectors you use, you know, what cost can you actually, what's the terminal cost of these key components? Mm -hmm. Do you have multiple sources in your supply chain for these key components? All of these things uh, ultimately drive manufacturability and cost. Yeah. And, you know, and I think those are the things where Veradyne has, because of the, the long sort of standing history of the company, we have been able to really think long and hard about these things and make those right choices and develop those deep relationships in the supply chain that give us the, this cost advantage. I read actually into that, and I know that that micro LiDAR array architecture is a proprietary technology of Veladyne. And I know that that's mass production, as I've said, is something that LIDARs, they try, they try and make them very complex and they're very difficult to mass produce, as you've said. So I know other companies, when trying to deal with that issue, have tried to base their architectures off kind of pre-existing semiconductor technology. So have you tried to keep your architecture quite similar to pre-existing semiconductor technology or is it completely kind of new? Yeah, you know, I think, I think, uh, I think there's, I would, my answer is yes and no, right? So I think where uh, you can, you can use pre-existing standard silicon or CMOS based semiconductor technology, you obviously always get huge advantage in scale, right? Of course. So yes. uh, at the same time, you don't, you, you cannot compromise on performance where the application demands it. So I think uh, that's the reason why we there are areas where we had to invent our own processes to be able to do this integration. Mm-hmm. The approach that some players take, for example, is they use a Vixel uh, array and a SPAD array to yep. create you know, these, these LIDARs. And the, the biggest problem we have with, with the Vixel array is you don't have the optical peak power density that you can get with an edge emitting laser. And so as a result of that, yes, they can create highly integrated LIDARs, but the performance is going to be subpar, right? And so 
so there are areas where you can use standard technology, but there are areas where you need to innovate to be able to actually get the the, the level of that that quantum leap in performance you need for uh, applications such as automotive. Um, and so that and and so that's that's the approach that uh, Valadine is taking. I know that's the main issue, isn't it? Not losing kind of performance in the laser when you're reflecting it or when you're kind of generating it um, at source from the um, the LiDAR system. So with regards to that micro LiDAR um, array, then, is that something that is that MEMS or is that true solid state? I would say that that the the micro LiDAR array itself is true solid state. So there's no moving parts, all completely um, a solidly integrated array. Yeah. Uh, you know, the there's a broader question, I think, which I think you're asking is uh, really around this concept of, you know, beam steering, right? And the idea that, so, uh, you know, you all, many LIDARs use some method or the other to scan the world. Yeah. And so the, the question to be asked is, uh, what are the right, what is the, is there the, a right way of scanning this world uh, with, your, with your arrays? And actually the answer is that there's many different ways of doing it uh, that are valid uh, depending upon the application. Okay. So if you go back to the original rotational LIDARs, right? Yeah. They actually also essentially are, you can think of them as you have a solid state array, but then you're just reusing the array across the entire field of view by just spinning it. It to be a very efficient way of actually getting a LIDAR because now instead of replicating this array like six times around the vehicle, I'm just putting putting one array and then just spinning it, right? So that that inherent efficiency in surround view rotation LIDAR still is very powerful. And that's the reason why it's still used extensively in, in applications where aesthetics and form factor are not important, but you want to see all around the vehicle, right? Yeah. But then if you go down to uh, what's, you know, the directional or solid state LIDAR that you use in a consumer purchase vehicle as an example, there, I think you have a couple of different choices. There, you can actually just have a fixed array, but yeah. then you know that limits depending upon the optics that you use. It limits your field of view, so you have a certain field of view. Now, if you want a broader field of view for that application, then you need to have some sort of scanning mechanism. Yeah, um, this is where MEMS comes in. So some people use MEMS to do this. Uh, we have our own proprietary uh, beam steering uh, technology that we use that doesn't have some of the disadvantages that classical MEMS has, uh, gives you much longer range as an example for the LIDAR, mm-hmm. uh, but has very high levels of reliability. Because again, if you use something that has ball bearings and that vibrates and shakes, then you have a lot of reliability issues if you're in, an, in a car. And, and so I think that's the trade-off that you make for uh, uh, building something that's you know, integrated into a car in a small form factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, the combination of fixed arrays and some level of beam steering. Definitely. Yeah. And I think you've mentioned it there, kind of the solid, the move to solid state or move to at least quasi solid state is to essentially if less parts move, less things can go wrong. Right. I mean, that's kind of why that, that methodology is being seen more, more prevalently at the moment within kind of the automotive domain, where the, the testing and the lifetime of the product is, has to be very long and the testing is very rigorous. That's right. And, and I, think, I think the interesting thing is um, that's, a, that's, that's the goal, even <laughs> though there's a lot of solutions out there today that profess to be solid state that actually have, oh, not sure. they have moving parts, but they have you know, ball bearings and they have things that actually are 
you know, uh, they have even oscillating ball bearings, which is probably the worst thing that you could do to a ball bearing. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's lots of, uh, you know, m- sort of misinformation on what solid state like truly is and what the capabilities are. But I think the broad point that you make is absolutely correct, which is you want a technology that is capable of providing that, that level of performance, hmm. but also is capable of being highly reliable in an automotive grade environment and can last, you know, 10 years on a, on a consumer car. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think uh, those are, again, the sort of sweet spot of technologies that uh, Velodyne is, uh, you know, has invested in and is bringing to market. And of course, by the way, you still have to do it at a few hundred dollars, right? Yeah. So that that uh, that constraint doesn't change, especially when you're in automotive. Uh, so that those are the choices that uh, that I think we we make, and that differentiates Velodyne's solid state architectures from a lot of the other players. And just want to go into kind of both the the full product line there at Velodyne, because I know that, and as we've just said, mechanical lidars, the main issue that people see with them is that they move a lot. There's a lot of moving parts. And obviously the more moving parts, especially on vehicles, there's more chances of things going wrong. Shock, vibrations can cause issues, which is of course what happened back in the day with with LIDARs kind of during the DARPA challenge. It's what happened with the Velodyne LIDAR. But I know now that you have mechanical LIDARs that are being used in in kind of kind of really harsh environments, kind of mining environments uh, in Australia. So how has kind of the how have you iterated that to ensure that the mechanical lidars can work in such harsh environments that's a great question you know i think uh, yeah i think you know the 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 we there's so much innovation that has gone into actually ruggedizing the the rotational lidar that you know we feel very confident now that we can provide rotational lidars in those harsh automotive grade or even you know harsh even harsher than automotive yeah. environments, and they can survive for you know uh, the same uh, extent that any of these other uh, uh, s- systems can, and that's on the backs of a lot of innovation from a mechanical design perspective. Uh, you know uh, the reality of it is when you think about it, uh, you our cars all have moving parts, right? Yeah. Uh, they all have they have ball bearings. They have things that actually move and rotate. And these things last uh, the lifetime of the vehicle as well. So it's possible to do this. Uh, uh, if you can create uh, ball bearing based systems that are actually, you know, 10 plus years lifetime, obviously the automotive industry is built on that. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we have been able to really take uh, some of those ideas of, you know, aerospace and uh, automotive grade mechanical engineering and bring it, uh, you know, to, to a product like a rotational LiDAR and then cost reduce it, working with yeah. some of the you know, leading sort of uh, mechanical uh, manufacturers in the world to really create uh, rotational LiDARs that I think you will see rotational LiDARs that are capable of, you know, you know seven to 10 year lifetimes, you know, harsh automotive grade environments. Uh, you know, they, they are capable of surviving, you know, uh, incredible levels of, uh, you know, water, uh, you know, we have, we 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 have we have tested our lidars with like power washing, uh, <laughs> and 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 things like that. And so I think uh, that level of reliability is no longer a barrier to adoption mm. for uh, even rotational lidar. Uh, so I think now the choice for the customers is completely determined by uh, the aesthetics and the design of the system, yeah. as well as 
the coverage around the vehicles that they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I think we have, we have sort of, we have taken away that reliability concern uh, for rotation LIDAR. And so now it's really a much, it's a much more binary choice between aesthetics and, and fields of view uh, for the customers. For sure. So with that in regards kind of keeping on the automotive aspect, would you, do you foresee that solid state LIDARs that are perhaps smaller and can be embedded into the vehicle will be used in the consumer space, whereas mechanical LIDARs might be used in, say, kind of robotic taxis or shuttles where there's more places to probably integrate them and aesthetics obviously aren't as high. Is that kind of where you see it going? That's exactly right. So I think we see the automotive industry really having uh, you know, two or three different domains. So yeah. there's a fully automated, uh, you know, ro- robotic taxi or shuttle, the sort of shared mobility application. Uh, and in those applications, we still see the rotational surround view LIDARs as being the de facto choice. Yeah. Uh, in fact, all the tens to hundreds of millions of miles of validation that all our customers have done have been in this on this architecture. Used to be used uh, extensively and will continue to be the case. Now, when you come to a consumer purchase vehicle that you and I can buy uh, in a dealership, there's a couple of different applications that are emerging. One is what the so-called level three uh, application, and we can can debate how real that is, traffic jam (laughs) assist to a highway autopilot type of application. But then also in a more real sense, level two, level two plus, which is your automatic emergency braking and those sorts of functionalities which are real and which actually keep your car safe. And you have the opportunity to add LiDAR to actually make those far more robust. Now, those sorts of applications will clearly use solid state LiDAR because I don't think anyone will accept something on the roof of a consumer purchase vehicle and and probably not, even though I think it would be kind of cool. But um, you do see LiDARs being integrated behind the grill, behind the, the view mirror on the side mirrors uh, into the headlamps um, and those sorts of uh, uh, integrations will happen with the solid state uh, uh, family of products so you're right so i think you will see a shared mobility will use rotational lidars and uh, definitely the consumer purchase vehicles will use more solid state lighters. and i think from a cost perspective as well it probably makes sense because the the lifetime of a of a robo taxi or a shuttle and kind of the cost factor will be outweighed by the number of trips it will make. Um, so I suppose cost isn't so big of an issue there, whereas on a vehicle that you and I can buy, obviously it is a lot bigger um, issue. And if you can't put a kind of $10,000 sensor on a vehicle that's kind of wants to be sold for twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 or so. So yeah, I think that makes perfect sense um, in that regards. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that's the trade-off that you will see. Uh, you know, of course we see all of the light costs for LiDAR, coming down on the backs of the technologies that we have talked about. So we think even rotational LIDARs will be uh, very cost efficient as we move forward. Uh, But ultimately you're right. I mean, I think I see for a level two type of system that you and I can buy, uh, I think you'll see in, you know, in, you know, you know, 2024, 2025 timeframe about a couple of hundred dollars of LIDAR content. Um, And I think that will provide very robust safety functionality uh, whereas if you go to the other end of the spectrum for a level four, level five system, maybe you see two to $3,000 of LiDAR content. Yes. Um, but I think uh, both of those will make uh, LiDAR cost not a barrier to adoption. And I think you will see adoption of LiDAR in, across that spectrum in automotive. 
for sure. I mean, that's always been one of the main issues, isn't it, really? Reliability, but then also cost factor. Um, but kind of since 2016, things have changed so drastically with regards to the cost reduction in that period of time. And as you have said, there's not really a barrier for entry now for LIDAR, especially in kind of the mid to premium range vehicles. I think starting from probably late next year, kind of 2022, you can expect to see some vehicles with LIDAR kind of equipped on them uh, for the sensor technology. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I think you will definitely see that rollout happening in 2022, 2023 and beyond. Umbilical technology. We help leaders of organizations at the forefront of innovation secure talent ahead of their competition. Now, LIDAR for autonomous driving, although it's kind of, it's a very cool subject, it's kind of where most people know it from. Um, It's not the only part of um, Velodyne's business, kind of reading over the investor deck, uh, kind of you guys put out last year, prior to the SPAC, which we'll get into a little bit later on. Um, I was quite surprised to see that autonomous driving applications, you only predicted that that would be kind of a quarter, around a quarter of your business in a couple of years. So kind of very keen to discuss where else you see kind of LIDAR being very beneficial and where it will continue to grow. So where do you think the main kind of the main areas of development will be going forward, Anand? Yeah, so the autonomous vehicle project, of course, I think will continue to be uh, an important part of our business. But as you said, you know, I think that, you know, that will take time to come to to fruition. And we see all our customers moving slowly and carefully in uh, towards scaling. Yep. As we talked about just now, ADAS is becoming a very important part of the business. I think especially uh, as people accept and understand the value that LiDAR brings to, you know, the average mid mid-tier cars that you and I can buy, it really will unlock uh, adoption of LiDAR. The other applications outside of automotive that are really interesting for us are, uh, you know, the one domain that I I like to call supply chain robotics, which is, you know, uh, really seeing a sea change in the world that we live in today, where we've all gotten used to ordering our groceries on our smartphones and having it show up at our doorstep. completely required the big e-commerce and logistics players to really change uh, and rethink every aspect of their supply chain, going from port operations to trucking to warehouse logistics to last mile delivery. Mm-hmm. And in each of those different segments, you are seeing them make investments in robotic solutions for increasing efficiency and automation. Yeah. And LIDAR uh, is the de facto sensor providing the eyes to these robots. So we have seen a huge uptake and, in fact, an acceleration of this trend in the post-COVID world where we're seeing uh, customers, several projects come online with customers who are trying to build uh, robotics and roll out robotic solutions across that supply chain. Uh, And I think last mile delivery, of course, is a really exciting part of that where, obviously, you have a huge number of endpoints. And the, the economics of this are very clear, right? I mean, even from before covid we had one customers whose analysis showed that their cost per package per delivery uh, could go from a dollar sixty per delivery, uh, on, if it's a human based delivery, to about six cents per delivery if it's a if it's a robotic system. Yeah. And as a result of that, I think you you will see that be a huge uh, story of growth for lidar uh, uh, in the next three three to four years as these systems roll out. So I think that's a very exciting part of the business. 
for sure. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I've seen myself. Uh, I've seen a lot of companies kind of coming about in the last couple of years that are developing kind of small delivery robots for last mile applications or for kind of local local grocery shopping, so to speak. So do you think that will be the next kind of biggest area for, for LiDAR and development just within robotics? I believe it is, yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's really accelerating uh, as we see it. Uh, I think LiDAR allows these robots to function across, again, many different lighting conditions. Mm. It allows these robots to map the world as they move through it and creating really a system that can learn and uh, evolve as, these, uh, as they roll out into the real world. And uh, we see in our own sales pipeline uh, tremendous growth in this uh, in this segment, uh, with lots of opportunities and 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 multi-year agreements um, in in this domain. Wow. The other domain I should mention also is the smart city, smart infrastructure domain. You know, in just just yesterday we had uh, our president here roll out a big you know uh, push towards uh, infrastructure investments. And I think you see that, I think you will see that across the world where as, you know, governments invest in infrastructure, there's going to be systems that really uh, allow for, you know, cities to really manage uh, their resources more efficiently, Mm -hmm. such as traffic management, uh, people uh, tracking and, and security solutions, making roads much safer by adding LiDAR and LiDAR-like sensor technology to the infrastructure versus adding it to the vehicle. Uh, the nice thing that LiDAR brings to the table there is really the ability to track uh, cars, track uh, human behavior without violating people's privacy. Yeah. Because unlike a camera, you don't, you're not doing any facial recognition. Of course. And that really is a, a powerful uh, advantage, uh, because uh, I think privacy concerns are very real, especially across the developed world. Okay. So we are, seeing, as a result of that, people really embrace the idea of using LiDAR and these smart infrastructure solutions. Yeah, this is something that I've, I've spoke about on one of the other podcasts, actually. And I think that application that LiDAR data will be able to gather, um, kind of from what you've said, kind of tra- traffic lights and people management and traffic management, if governments and kind of councils, if they use that data correctly, the efficiency that can be brought about will just be great kind of because you'll be able to kind of change the traffic flow based on kind of the stop signs. You'll be able to open up kind of with shops and things like that. You can open up shops at different times based on the footfall in certain areas. It it really is kind of the use of sensors and data. Kind of It's, it's really futuristic and it's really exciting area. I think it's only just yeah. to some extent as well. It's it's a very powerful application because essentially you have the ability to create this real-time digital three-dimensional uh, twin, if you will, of yeah. the city. And, and you can use that to really manage city resources, manage retail resources, as you said, uh, and, and really create a very efficient uh, you know, sort of city uh, system. And I think it's very powerful. I mean, something as simple as your, you know, your bus driver should be, should already know how many people are waiting on the next bus stop. And it's something so easy to do with existing LiDAR technology. I mean, you stick one Valeray, uh, you know, in the vicinity and you'll know exactly how many people are there. Those sorts of uh, basic 
you know things would make make uh, our city services our city transportation uh, so efficient mm-hmm. uh, and and also allow city planners to actually make the right trade offs and choices as they add a, a lane add a bike lane maybe there's lots of bicyclists on this road or you know change the timing for the pedestrian crosswalk i mean because there's a lot of pedestrians who cross at this time of the day yeah uh, there's so many things that are possible when you have that that sort of digital three dimensional data of the, of the real world and i think uh, i think it's very exciting application that's that's just uh people are realizing how powerful it can be for sure yeah i'll be honest it wasn't one that i knew too much about until fairly recently but kind of when it was explained to me and when it was discussed to me it, and i'm not sure if you if you're familiar with this but it almost reminded me of kind of playing a video game playing kind of sim city when you can see that there's a problem over there based on the data and you, you can take steps to fix it obviously it's not as quick because the, kind of the councils will have to get involved and change certain things which is obviously legislatory but it almost is like that or could be yeah. like that in the future that's right that's right i think you will have the ability to really at least you will have the data at your fingertips to make make very precise decisions whether the decisions can be made faster that obviously also <laughs> the council and so on and so forth but i think the data will will all be there and we we see this being utilized as you said by cities and and you know municipalities but also we see we see customers in the in the commercial space i mean we have big big uh you know hyperscaler type of customers who are saying in my own office campuses in my own factories in universities in 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 amusement parks yeah. there's all these different spaces where you know there's a lot of value to understand what's happening real time in the three dimensional world and lidar essentially just allows you to digitize the three dimensional world uh, in real time I mean, as, you, as you've said, and as you touched on kind of at the start of discussing kind of the smart city application, listeners might be sitting here thinking, why, why not a camera? But as you've said, LiDAR is great at detection, but it doesn't, it doesn't identify a person. Well, it identifies a silhouette, but it doesn't identify who that specific person is. So privacy concerns that might be there if it was a camera are negated by the use of a LiDAR. that's exactly right and and i think that's really powerful uh because uh because that allows us to really be able to uh preserve uh you know the the individual privacy of a person at the sensor edge itself so it's not that you're obfusc- obfuscating it at some higher level compute at the sensor itself the sensor is not gathering data that will allow you know an individual person to be recognized but at the same time it's providing all the data that you need to do all this rich data analytics that we are talking about. Great. Okay. Yeah, look, I'm I'm very excited to kind of see the development in that area. It's when I got, first got explained to it and looked into it, it was something that kind of blew my mind and I did get very excited about kind of that application of it. And just want to go back to the to the robotics aspects because we touched on that but then kind of got sidetracked a little bit. I know that there's already delivery robots in in certain cities and certain kind of municipalities but how big do you think that will get i mean do you think that this will be something that is a regular occurrence in one or two or five years yeah i think i think it will i think it could be uh, uh something that in the next 3 years at least in uh, very urban uh, settings this we will get we'll get very used to this 
and and the reason for that and you and the reason my simple data point uh, i have the two data points are one is the level of investments that are already happening uh, in this uh, in with the big e-commerce and logistics players you know as an as an example in in north america you have uh, it's quite well known that amazon is uh, you know buying up a lot of local unused retail space you know like the big old big big box stores used to have in these malls and converting them into micro hubs or distribution centers okay. and really in every neighborhood you will have a you will have a staging area where all these products uh, are brought and so that really sets it up really well for this last mile distribution uh, the other thing that you're seeing is in the regulatory uh, environment you're seeing many uh, many uh, many states in 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 north america but also in other parts of the world many countries uh putting in place regulations that allow these goods delivery systems to uh to function uh in sidewalks as well as in 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 bike lanes and in streets uh so i think that both those things really are strong data points that you know we are moving towards these systems uh, rolling out into the real world yeah and i think it just makes sense like i've seen reports and articles saying that there'll be deliveries by drones kind of UAVs so flying drones but it just makes so much more sense that they're they're wheeled on the ground the risk factor is just it must be so much less if they're on the ground than it is if they're flying it just has to be yeah i think the risk factor is less also your uh, flexibility in carrying more heavy uh, packages is much higher i mean you know if you i mean anyone who's played around with drones and i and i i have i mean get <laughs> drone to carry a gallon of milk is is a pretty <laughs> challenging task right and Absolutely. so i think i think uh, definitely ground vehicles will be will be part of the solution i think you may see some drone deliveries as well but yeah. i think ground vehicles definitely make uh, make a lot of sense yeah. and ultimately also i think this is a way where all of the investments that have already been made in the autonomous vehicle project uh, can yeah. be monetized much earlier with yeah. these sorts of systems and i think that's the reason why you will see a lot of the av players also start uh, talking about goods delivery as part of their business model because actually that that's the safety case is easier first and foremost of course yeah so you have the ability to actually monetize it and the business case is much much more straightforward yeah definitely it's much easier to have a robot than having kind of a a, a ton car that can kind of crash into someone else it's a lot easier to have a small robot that we're doing that and i think look i'll be honest we've we've not got the robots here yet that are delivering vehicle the kind of delivering packages from amazon or anything like that but i'll be honest i'm pretty confident that a, a robot a robotic vehicle delivering something would be a lot better than some of the delivery drivers i've had uh, during covid-19 so yeah I'll be I'll be happy to see a robot pull up with kind of my parcel at least it probably won't get lost or go to the neighbors or something like that chuck it over the back fence at least I'll be able to get it for this time that's right you know the other thing that's really that you know uh, that we see also is is really the idea of true sort of on demand delivery right i mean you know rather than you having to wait for like a 2 hour window where you know this driver shows up and throws a package at you <laughs> if you have a robotic based delivery system I mean, you can actually tell the system when you are home, right? And yeah. so you actually say, "Okay, I'm I'm home now. Mm. Get a package, right?" Yeah. And I think that sort of flexibility becomes much more possible 
when you have this 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 sort of a robotic system in place i suppose the the potential there as well would be that it would be a lot easier to track you could even you could track it like an uber you can see exactly where it is whereas with parcels as you said it might be a, a two a one hour two hour delivery slot and even then you never know if it's going to turn up at that time so yeah i think exactly i think it makes total sense and one thing when I was doing my research into this area was kind of looking at the last mile delivery is actually where all the cost comes from, isn't it? In terms of delivering a package. So although they're automating the whole kind of delivery chain and process, it totally makes sense to do that in the, in the, in the last mile delivery space. That's right. I think the last mile delivery space, as, as I was saying, is the place where the maximum cost, I think over 50% of the cost of packages in the last mile and then further, I think it's the biggest barrier to growth uh, because it's the number of last mile deliveries you can make, uh, especially if you're trying to do grocery deliveries and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the barrier to, to being able to deliver and grow more for these players. And so for those reasons, I think it makes perfect sense that you want to automate the last mile. Definitely. And that's something that kind of Velodyne will be very heavily involved in. Obviously, as you've mentioned, the, the Puck and the Veloray as well. They've been almost specifically designed, well, Velaray especially, has been specifically designed with that in mind, right? Kind of being integrated. That's right, yeah. We have a specific SKU of the Velaray that's called the M1600 that is specifically designed for robotics applications. And uh, I think uh, it's seeing, and we're very pleased to see a lot of traction uh, with many robotics customers with that product. And so, yeah, we have, uh, we, we recognize how important this segment is, and we have actually built uh, a specific custom skew of the Valerie for this application. Great, yeah, look, that's something that I, another figure that I read was that this is going to be kind of a, a multi-billion-dollar market by kind of the turn of the decade. So, kind of seeing that happen by 2030, I'm I'm sure that the kind of delivery robots will be almost commonplace in in most kind of the developed world. It seems, especially with what you're saying there about Amazon and other e-commerce players already planning for that. That's right. We see across many different parts of the world, uh, both, uh, both you know, the developed world as well as in places like China, these sorts of systems are already being uh, developed and deployed. Uh, and so, so I, I think, yeah, you will see that that will become very commonplace and become part of our daily lives, uh, as you see, maybe even in the next five years. Awesome. Yeah, as I said, look, I can't wait, especially delivery robots and smart cities. Uh, those applications seem very, very exciting to me for sure. And so look, I want to touch on now as well, kind of, kind of what you see or envision happening there at Velodyne over um, kind of the next three to five years. I think the reason I decided to do this podcast was the amount of activity going on in the LiDAR space. There's there's mergers, there's acquisitions, there's new companies, new products on a, on a very regular basis. So you were one of the first kind of tech companies and probably the first LiDAR company that I seen going public um, kind of middle of last year. I think it first got announced and kind of popped up on my radar. So help me understand kind of why was it that you chose to go public and, and why was it that you chose to do that by the method that you did by the, um, the SPAC merger? Yeah, you know, I think we had been, uh, you know, for us, we had been working towards actually going going public for uh, a, a while, for at least a year before that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Many reasons for us, it felt right. You know, we had reached a level of scale 
we had, you know, the, the customer base, we were seeing this inflection point in the LiDAR space that I talked about. We were clearly seeing it happen. We were seeing that as, as visible in our own sales pipeline. And for those reasons, we felt it was the right time to, to capitalize the business. Um, okay. This, you know, first wave of adoption of technology is upon us in the next three to five years. And then, of course, when we looked at the actual mechanism to go public, we looked at a very traditional IPO, and then we also looked at the SPAC as an option. Yep. And uh, at that time, of course, the SPAC was, uh, you know, was a relatively new. Yeah. Concept. There were a few players who had a few companies who had done it, and ultimately, we picked the SPAC because it gave us the opportunity to have many repeated conversations with uh, the investment community, and really explain this 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 inflection point that we were we were sitting on and uh, you know i think uh, that's a really important part of the story to really understand what a big inflection point the lidar industry is going through and uh, it's a very difficult thing to do in a traditional ipo process where you're like it's a 10 day sprint with like half an hour speed dating sessions with the public investors and and so i think this sort of uh, the longer process actually we thought would be better uh, from our perspective, and, and it worked out. It worked out well for us. I think you know. Since then, as it has been often in the lidar space, you know, there's Velodyne does something, and a bunch of people follow and copy. And so we've had like five or six company lidar companies try go out with the same SPAC instrument. And I don't necessarily think that it's it's nece- it's a good thing for all of those companies uh, because I think ultimately, the SPAC is not an excuse for. Uh, not having a, a, a sound financial future, right? And ultimately, no matter whether you go through a traditional IPO or you go through a SPAC, at the other end of it, you have to behave like a public company. Yeah. And you have to execute like a public company and be able to have a sound financial growth story. Exactly. And for, for some of these companies who are actually pre-revenue or very early stage revenue, hmm. it's like the, you know, it feels like the SPAC has become a way to raise capital, but it's not necessarily the most efficient because ultimately they still have to behave like a public company. And if you're five, $6 million in revenue, it's, it's, it's too early to predict. It's just a very, very high risk situation. So I think it's been interesting to see all of this activity. Uh, I think some companies are, are ready, like Velodyne was ready to go uh, public in a traditional route, but they are picking SPAC for many different reasons. And that's, that's okay. But then there's some companies who I think are doing it just because it's it's available, but they're not really ready to be public companies. And I think those companies will will struggle because ultimately once you're a public company, it's, it's, it's there for everyone to see and judge. Yeah. So was SPAC kind of coming down to the financials, was SPAC the right option for you because you already had kind of customers, you'd already made revenue, and that's why you chose to go down that route rather than an IPO to some extent? Yeah, I think it was a combination of the fact that, look, we wanted to go public and we had revenue, we had customers, we could we could do it with the traditional IPO. But really, the with a uh, with the LiDAR uh, space, it, there is clearly an inflection point, right? I mean, we, we were seeing the, the entire business go through this transition as the market was transitioning from a lot of research and development projects to actually the first wave of mass commercialization across the next three to five years. And that's a story that is quite nuanced. Uh, and it, it's really, imp- it was very important for us to be able to tell that story well yeah. uh, to, our in- to our initial investors. And it, it took 
several repeated conversations to actually make sure that people understood this inflection point we were talking about. Yeah. So that's the reason we chose this fact. Uh, uh, and and I think from a from a from a financial perspective, I think you know we could have done either. Yeah. So was the inflection point kind of just proving, well, not proving to the investors because we'd already done it, but essentially just iterating to them, look, we can mass produce LiDAR systems, whereas other companies may not or have not been able to do that and may not be able to do that. Was that kind of the the key difference that you were trying to kind of make during those meetings? Yeah, I think really, yeah, explaining, yes, the two things. One is the incredible commercial opportunity that was happening. And, you know, that's the, the you know, the part of the inflection point is, yes, we, we were clearly seeing and are clearly seeing customers move into mass commercialization. And finally, after all these years in research and development, LiDAR is now being adopted in yeah. these mass, mass markets. That was one part of the story. But the second part of the story, as you rightly said, is, and the technology and the manufacturing strategy is in place where we are confident that we can execute to these big contracts and actually deliver the products at scale. Yeah. And, 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 and the fact that we have a significant lead over all the other players in being able to do that and being able to deliver those products at scale. I think that was the, that was the story that we were trying to tell. Um, was that, I mean, how difficult was that? Cause I know that there's been other LIDAR companies in the past that have, have made claims that they can produce X, Y, and Z for prices that would be quite good now and haven't been able to do that. So was there a, was there investor doubt that what you were saying would be feasible or how did that go? Yeah, I think, you know, I think, as I said, I think this fact process helped us because we had many, many deep conversations with investors. I think ultimately the investors are convinced uh, of the opportunity set. And I think when, at the time when we went public, uh, of course, we were the first com- uh, pure play LiDAR company to go public. I think clearly there was an understanding that, yeah, I think this is real, especially because we were showing real commercial traction going from, you know, uh, uh, three three uh, production contracts to like, uh, you know, close to 20 contracts at the time when we went public. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to show tangible commercial progress. Yeah. And I think that, that obviously went over well. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, you know, I think since then, with some of these other companies trying to go public, it's actually also been pos- a net positive because now yeah. every- their numbers are out there for everyone to see. Yeah. And it actually validated everything that we were saying about our market share and our sort of dominant position in the space. So I think it's, it's, it's actually now I think you are at a point where uh, we are seeing the investors actually the, realize what a powerful and, uh, you know, uh, uh, fundamental shift uh, this technology can bring to so many different applications. And so I think you're seeing a lot of public investor interest in LiDAR. Definitely. And kind of you've paved the way there by kind of showing that it can be done and showing what is possible with the technology and it can be mass produced. You've made it a lot easier, I suppose. Well, you've, get, you've given the market more knowledge about what is possible and made it easier for those other companies to kind of tread on that already beaten path, so to speak. I think so. I think Veladine can take a lot of credit for actually paving in the public markets for LiDAR. For sure. I mean, yeah, I've seen a lot of SPACs recently, even not even in the LiDAR space. I mean, there have been countless, but just yesterday, I think Lilium, again, another pre-revenue company, they've, they've announced that they're going by, by SPAC. It seems that it's, it's all the trend kind of last year and this year to 
to firstly go public and to do it by uh, a SPAC if you're a, if you're a technology company working in kind of very innovative innovative spaces. That's right. Yeah, I think as I, and you know that's become really a, a, a trend, uh, and it's not necessarily as I said in my mind it's not necessarily uh, all healthy, right? I mean, there's the, ultimately you know the 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 rules for being a public company are are, are no different whether you're a, go through a SPAC or an IPO. So I feel like to some extent the SPAC has uh, as an instrument has replaced uh, late stage. Uh, private funding, uh, uh, stage private equity, and so which you know, which I think there's a there's a place for all of those things. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. I think you know ultimately, uh, you will see that execution will 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 you know rule the day. You know, companies who are able to actually make real revenue and real products execute will will ultimately survive. Yeah. So obviously, when you're a public company, that is the that is all that matters essentially it is it is making money for the shareholders and the investors. Um, so yeah, we'll see how that goes. I think that is again, part of the reason I've, I've done this podcast to educate individual or educate listeners on LIDAR technology and its uses, but then also because of the amount of activity that's going on there, it's just a very exciting space to speak with companies that are doing things differently um, and to kind of see what, who will be left standing kind of in a couple of years, so to speak. Now, obviously, Velodyne have, be, have been about for a long time already. Um, and I'll ask this question to all the guests so far, Anand, but kind of in three to five years, kind of back end of kind of the 2020s, what do you think the LiDAR market will look like then? Mm. So, you know, uh, I think there's a few uh, things from, uh, you know, the, my vision, and this is Velodyne's, well, it has been Velodyne's vision ever since its founding, is really uh, to democratize uh, automation and safety uh, brought about by LIDAR. And so I think we are seeing, we are really excited to see that happening. So from a market perspective, I think you will see many different aspects of our life uh, influenced by LIDAR technology. You know, as we have been talking about through the podcast, and all of those, I think you will see them you know, really happening in the next, in the next decade. Sure. Uh, so, so many different aspects of our life uh, touched by LIDAR. Uh, as a result of that sort of broad-based adoption of the technology, I think there is room for pure play LIDAR companies. Okay. I think the technology is so fundamental and we, we have the ability to impact so many different applications. Mm. I don't think there's room for 70. <laughs> <laughs> so I, think, I think you will see very quickly in the next five to six years, lots of consolidation. Sure. So I think there is room for a handful, you know, maybe five or less than five LIDAR companies who will be less left standing at in that time period. Yeah, I think that's one thing that we said to the other guests on the podcast. I think it would be good to revisit this, maybe not that far in advance, kind of five to seven years, because who knows where we'll be at that point. But definitely, I think I'd like to revisit in a perhaps a year or so, because I think, the amount of products that are coming out onto the market, the amount of companies going public, even in the next year or so, I think there'll be a lot of change. Companies that have might not been able to hit the targets that they've set out or companies that have decided to consolidate with other companies and merge together. I think it's going to be a very interesting year or two in the LiDAR domain for sure. And that's across different applications and verticals as well. It's a, it's certainly a very exciting and dynamic time. There's, you know, it's it's a uh, uh, there's lots of uh, 
growth. There's lots of demand for the technology and there's a, a few different players with different approaches. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how the market uh, evolves and shakes out in the next couple of years. For sure. Yeah. And look, I'm excited to be a part of it. I'm excited to kind of see how it develops myself. Um, look, Anand, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I think we've, we've covered a lot. We've got a great understanding of kind of the different LIDARs that Velodyne produce and the reason that they have a kind of a diverse product line of mechanical um, and solid state LIDARs for various different application verticals as well. Um, and yeah, we've discussed a lot kind of about just the market in general and where we expect to see kind of great growth potential uh, over the next couple of years. If anyone has any questions for you regarding LIDAR technology, is it something that they can reach out to you about on LinkedIn or is there another way to kind of get in contact? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think you can re- reach out to me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, I'm always open to, I mean, it's a small world of ultimately, <laughs> still believe it's a small world and there's lots of interesting ideas and i'm always open to interesting technology conversations definitely for sure well look it's been a pleasure and and as we've as i've said we'll definitely try and kind of do a rerun of this perhaps in a, perhaps in a year or a year and a half's time and we'll kind of see how how things have developed and how the lidar world is standing at that point and who knows maybe there'll be delivery robots everywhere look forward to it 